We'll remind you of a couple of announcements. First of all, our prayer for the for Catherine Tapping and her family on the death of her son Don this last week and the memorial service for him will be this coming Saturday, May 12th at 11 a.m. here at West Houston uh, Bible Church. Then uh, the next Saturday on May 19th we will have our uh, men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting. That's the only thing related to our calendar and our events but also Comment. I know that there are people listening and watching who are going to Israel. I've been surprised that nobody's called me today or emailed me today and say, well, what's going on? Well, first of all, if you're waiting till today to call me, where have you been? There's all kinds of stuff that's been going on. In fact, the defense minister of Israel warned the people to be ready to go to the bomb shelters because there could be retaliation from Iran at uh, any moment. They've been expecting something. This is always going on. And um, there's nothing to worry about. Number one, God's in control. Number two, when we go to Israel, we're, no matter what the fear mongers may, may say, we're always pretty safe. The network of communications between tour guides and bus drivers, uh, the last thing Israel wants is for there to be any, even even a splinter for any tourist that's over there. I mean, that's about 60% of their revenue comes from tourism, so they, they don't want anything to happen. So we're well taken care of. I remember in 2013, we were a mile from the Lebanon border. I was with an APAC group, and we got a call from the IDF. The same thing that happened today happened then. Israel found out about a shipment of missiles and armaments that was coming from Iran to Hezbollah. Of course, you should know that Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets north of the border pointed at Israel, and that's been going on for seven or eight years, and they continue to build that. But that um, uh, at this was in 2013, they got word that there was a shipment of arms and missiles that was uh, at the airport in Damascus, and so they sent in an a, um, Israeli Air Force strike team and blew that away. And so we were told that there might be retaliation, so we were waved off of our destination, which was up on the border. So that's the kind of thing that happens, and it's not anything to get... Uh, too excited about. That's what happened today because about two weeks ago, you probably didn't hear it on the news, but Israel found out that there was a, a missile depot up near Damascus and they hit it. And they hit it hard and they blew everything up. And it registered 2.6 on the Richter scale. Now that's a significant explosion. That is why Iran has been beating their chest that they're going to do something, but they're not pre really prepared uh, to do anything. So we recognize that we just rest in the everlasting arms of our Lord, and everything is just going to be, be fine. These things happen over there. Israel is one of the safest places to be. And so uh, I've all, always had a few people here or there that are a little concerned, a little nervous. We read all these things. And I just use the analogy of going to New York. 
you hear all kinds of bad things that happen in certain parts of Brooklyn and certain and Harlem and other places. But when you go to New York, you're not going there. So we're, we're not going to be going down on the Gaza border. We're not going to be, uh, we may not be going up too far on the Golan this time, depending on the circumstances in Syria. But uh, we've been, I've been up there certainly before where we saw bombs that had gone off. We could see the smoke rising off in the distant, in the horizon. So, but that's in another country on the other side of a lot of IDF troops. So God protects us. So just be prepared to um, have a great time on the Israel trip. So we'll be doing that. I just returned this afternoon from Memphis. I went up there to film with um, Brandon House for Worldview Weekend, his ministry. He spoke to us a couple times back in when I went to, to uh, Kiev back in January. And he is a very... Uh, he's got this ministry that focuses on worldview, current events, a lot of contemporary news things, but he realizes the the real focal point of stability and the foundation for a Christian worldview is the verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible. And he's got Tommy Ice teaching through verse-by-verse through Revelation. Andy Woods is teaching verse-by-verse through some other things. And he's been after me for two years to teach something. And now i am started going through Matthew verse-by-verse, and I recorded 10 half-hour lessons yesterday on Matthew. And so I'll be flying up there about uh, four times a year or so on a Sunday, come back on Tuesday and record 10 or 12 uh, sessions. So this is uh, really going to be good. He claims to have says he has about 250,000 subscribers, and if they're like many people, and they seem to be very interested in the Word and in uh, Christian thinking. So this would be an audience that is getting exposed to uh, some good Bible teaching, and I know that from talking with both Andy and Tommy that they've had a strong uptick in people who are finding out about their ministries and their churches, and so that is, that's good. We need to get the word out and get people in this country focused upon, uh, upon the word and learning the word. Okay, we are studying in Samuel, but we're taking a slight break to talk about a topic arising from our study, which is on worship. So before we begin, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer so that we are properly prepared to worship. Worship is a mental attitude. It is determined, as we are seeing in our study, by your volition. It's determined by how you set your mind beforehand. It is not determined by uh, dramatics in stage setting and atmospherics to try to generate a certain mindset, which I understand more and more is typical of a lot of churches. They paint the walls black, they dim the lights, they have smoke, all these kinds of things to try to artificially manufacture what a mental state that they identify as worship. That is not what the Bible teaches. You don't see anybody anywhere in Scripture going through those kinds of dramatics in order to worship God. It comes from an apprehension of God, as we'll see in our study tonight. But, as we'll also see in our study tonight, in order to worship Him, we must be 
We must be cleansed of sin. Positionally, we are at salvation, but experientially, we need to confess sin, and we're instantly forgiven, and that prepares us for worship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's just a fantastic privilege beyond anything we can ever imagine that we can come into your presence as a corporate group, a group of believers here at West Houston Bible Church to worship you, to uh, submit ourselves to you, to your word, to the teaching of your word, that we might recognize that you are the sovereign ruler of the universe, you are the you are the creator of all things, and therefore you and you alone are worthy of worship. Now, Father, as we study your word and we think about this concept of worship and what it means and what it means for us individually, service with our lives as well as corporately, that God the Holy Spirit would drive home the truths that we're studying in your word, that we, by, we may be reminded that we were created to serve you because of sin. That relationship was breached, but because you are the God who provided a perfect redemption, then that can be restored and we can continue to serve you. It is beyond our imagination and our understanding that you would make it possible for fallen creatures to serve you in this way. And for that, we give you glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are looking tonight at the core of what we'll be covering is in Isaiah chapter 6, the revelation of God to Isaiah. But I want to review a few things from last time that we taught. And I started off with several quotes, observations from Dr. Alan Ross in his book on recalling the hope of glory. But one of the things that he said that I want to keep foremost in our minds is the fact that we often are so busy in life that we just we just fit Bible class, the worship of God in. It, it belongs there between 10.30 noon on Sunday, 7.30 Tuesday and Thursday night, and we come in and we spend time when we move on, whereas this is supposed to be a focal point of our lives. He writes in recalling the hope of glory, our attention to the Lord must not be an ordinary part of life. I just think that that's a, a statement that needs to be highlighted. When we talk about God as a holy God, that he is distinct and set apart and unique, then that which relates to God is said in the Old Testament to be holy. Therefore, that which is used to worship God in the Old Testament was not to ever be used for anything else. There is this distinction made between everyday use of things and that which is set apart to God. Therefore, on Shabbat, it was set apart to God. It was a day of to focus on the Lord and to rest and trust in Him. Now, Sabbath is not for today. That was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. But there is an implication there that we are to take time 
to focus on the Lord, that this is to be set apart. It's not supposed to be like other times and other activities and other events in our life. Therefore, when we come together corporately on Sunday morning, it should be different from anything else that we do in life. The problem that we have today is that the idea has just captured the modern evangelical church that what we do on Sunday morning is to, it has an evangelistic purpose, so therefore it should be like everything else that we do in life so that the unbeliever doesn't feel uncomfortable. And that just runs counter to everything that we read in the Scripture. This is a time that is to be set apart to the service of God. That which takes place then is distinct for that purpose. And and so the things that are part of our everyday life, and we think about, for example, we live in a world today that is dominated by entertainment. We are entertained way too much. And now that we have all of these smartphones and smart devices and iPads and iPods and iPhones and everything else, and I'm as much as anybody else, we are so distracted by entertainment that we're not thinking profoundly about the issues of life anymore because it's boring. And so coming together to be quiet before the Lord and church services. I remember uh, many times I have been in churches. Once the prelude music begins, people got quiet. This is our time to prepare for worship, uh, not a time to continue chattering until somebody stands up and starts talking. So we need to recognize that worship is not part of ordinary life, that, as he says, our worship of him should be the most momentous, urgent and glorious activity of our lives. He asks, as part of his introduction, three questions. How then, in light of what the Bible says about worship and who God is, how then can we talk casually of the Lord? If we understand what God has revealed about himself in the Scripture... How can we talk casually about him? Second, he asked, how can we merely slot him into our fully scheduled lives? When we think about the fact that sometimes we get a little bored, oh, we sing these same hymns all over and over again. But if you look carefully at the scriptures, when we look at Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim are singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then almost... 3,000 years later when John, or 1,000 years later or so when John has the vision, but his vision is focusing on what is happening at the time of the, after the rapture, before the tribulation, he has a vision of heaven. They're singing the same hymn before God. There's no boredom because the words have meaning and significance to the people who are singing it. That's not something that can be manufactured, although there's an attempt to do that in many churches, it can't be manufactured by the song leader, the choir director, the pastor. It has to come from the worshiper's internal focus, his relationship with the Lord. You can't make people worship. That is a matter of personal focus and personal 
volition. And then when we look at the fact that these angels, the angelic choirs, continuously sing praise to God in the throne room of God in heaven, how can we think that there are more important things for us to do in life than to worship Him? Now, that doesn't mean coming together, we should be in church 24-7, but that that corporate worship is the outworking of an individual worship. And that individual worship is how we look at what we are doing 24-7 as we recognize that God has saved us, he's redeemed us, he's bought us with a price for the purpose of serving him in this life. Then I started to track through some of the things that we observe when we get a glimpse of the heavenly scene. In Job 38, 4 through 7, where God is asking Job these rhetorical questions, and he's focusing on his creation at the foundation of the earth in Job 38.4. He says that at this time the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And my point was that the angels united before the fall of Satan are singing. There is music in heaven. And then that tells us that this is a music that is totally in conformity with God's righteousness, that there is a perfect music and that there therefore is a everlasting standard for what makes good music, that there is such a thing as good music and bad music, and recognition that music is a language and it communicates. We have passages in Scripture, for example, in Psalm 89.5, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. And here we see that there is a parallelism. There's an internal chiasm. Starts with heavens. We'll praise your wonders. That's the second idea. Then your faithfulness. See, faithfulness and wonders relate to each other. And then the last term in the second line is also in the assembly in the holy ones. The holy ones are the ones who inhabit the heavens. The heavens, in this verse, not talking about the literal stars and galaxies that make up the universe, but that which inhabits the heavens are the angels. That which, those who, uh, that which inhabits the earth are human beings. So Moses calls upon two witnesses when he's uh, establishing the covenant uh, re-establishing the covenant with Israel in Deuteronomy calls on the heavens and the earth. According to the law, you have to have two witnesses. So he looks at two groups, those who inhabit the heavens or the angels, those who inhabit the earth are human beings. These two collective groups he calls upon as witnesses to the covenant that God has made with Israel. So here we see when it says the heavens will praise your wonders, it's talking about the angels will praise your wonders. And that's parallel to God's faithfulness. His character is what is the focal point. His essence, who God is as a person, not just qualities. See, sometimes when we reduce God's essence to a pedagogical tool like the essence box, I've heard people just read that like a grocery list as they're praising God, that's pretty simplistic and superficial, and that doesn't quite get the point of this. They all blend together 
in the one person of the Almighty Creator God. And we uh, worship Him because He possesses all of these attributes and they interact with each other. Psalm 89.6. Now remember, Psalm 89 is a meditation on God's faithfulness in giving the covenant to David. In Psalm 89.6, he says, For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty, that is, the sons of God, another term for the angels, who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? In other words, God is incomparable. God is unique. He's one of a kind. He's distinct. There's nothing you can compare him to. And Psalm 89.7, a God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones. These are the angels. So they, they sing and they praise God. Then we looked at Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 28, uh, 12 and following, not for its angelology or Satanology, but to point to the fact that, that prior to his fall, Lucifer was, had a role and responsibility similar to a priest. He has, his, his garments are described with these various precious stones. Uh, nine of the twelve are on the breastplate of the high priest in Israel. So if you were Jewish, if you were an Israelite, you're reading this, you're thinking, oh, that's like the high priest. And then there's the line that I've underlined in verse 13, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. And this was where uh, we were bringing things to a close last time, that, that this indicates that he is a musician. Lucifer was the master musician. He's the greatest most intelligent, most beautiful, most incredible creature God ever created. And he was the master musician, and as part of his responsibilities, he would have led these heavenly choirs. And so as we looked at this and we study through uh, this, we understand that there is a... There is a um, a standard that is set up here that before there was ever any fall or any judgment or any corruption, there was perfect music. It was harmonious music among the angels. It held to a standard of divine perfection. And so when we come to a further study, and I'm sort of wrapping up what we did last time, we understand that music has its source ultimately within the thinking of God, ultimately within the Godhead. It's not something the angels invented. It is something that God, it, uh, a, an ability God created within them, but music itself existed originally within the mind of God. If you don't agree with that, then you have a problem because you're saying that somehow music has an origin apart from God, unlike anything else. And you find today that you have uh, many of the thinkers in this area of contemporary worship think about uh, music as being something that is totally neutral. Nothing in this world is neutral. Everything has been uh, corrupted uh, by sin. And so if there is a heavenly music, if music originated in the mind of God, then there is an absolute reference point which means there is an absolute standard for evaluating music. And there are differences in the kind of music that we hear. It tells us that music is not something that is simply a matter of personal taste. Some people can like really horrible art. Some people like really horrible, ugly fashion. 
personal taste has no bounds in terms of uh, bad taste. But there are standards, standards that have been recognized by people who are thoughtful, people who have observed things, people who understand uh, these issues related to color, related to texture, related to form, related to sound, and they understand that there is good music and there is mediocre music and there is poor music. And that if we're going to worship the incredible God of the Bible, then we should do the best we can to have good quality music. And by that I mean that there have been hymns, time-honored hymns, that have been recognized through the history of the church. And we need to think of the body of Christ not just in terms of of sort of those who are alive today, but the body of Christ is made up of all those that go back to the first century, to those who were first saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And throughout this whole body of believers, there have been those who have been gifted and talented by God in this particular area, and we need to listen to them and their understanding of music. For example, by way of a simple analogy, there are many of us that may not really understand what goes on in in the world of virtual reality and the Internet. And even though we may not understand it, we have to function with it. So in order to function with it well, we have to find somebody who really understands computers and the Internet and virtual reality and all of those things. And whether we agree or like whatever it is they say, we need to follow them because they understand that which we do not understand. And there are many of us who have rather, to be honest, mediocre tastes in music. We have tastes that are shaped by pop culture. But we lack appreciation, and we don't hear the things that, for example, a Mozart would hear, or a Bach would hear, or a Handel would hear. We don't hear those things. That doesn't mean we need to just opt for mediocre music. It means we need to let the people who hear the things we don't hear and understand the things we don't understand guide and direct us so that it elevates us to a higher level and not a lower level. So this is one of the things we learn from, from our study in, in these passages that emphasize music. Now, if we go on to look at what is described in Ezekiel 28, we're introduced to this particular uh, angel. He's identified as an anointed cherub who covers. So he is the word Mashiach is applied. That just simply means he is anointed or appointed to a particular task. And he was on the holy mountain of God, which means he had a very had very close proximity to God, and he was perfect in all of his ways, which means he had perfect, perfect music. Now he's a cherub. Now I want to talk a little bit about this because when we get into our next passage, which is in Isaiah chapter six, we're going to talk about seraphim. And so we need to pause and identify these two, or actually there's three classifications of angels that will show up in our study. We have references to the, the, the Lord of hosts. The term host refers to the armies of the angels. 
And this is called the host of God, sometimes the chariots of God. So that refers to the entirety of the angels. There are cherubs that are mentioned. They have four wings. The singular is cherub. The plural in Hebrew is cherubim. The plural in English is cherubs. But they are not little babies with chubby little faces and pink cheeks and little wings floating around uh, in the air uh, around God. They are fierce creatures. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. I don't want to go through an in-depth study here, but we have to think these are powerful creatures, awesome creatures. Ezekiel chapter 1, I just want to read through the description for you. Also from within within it, that is, he's seen this vision of this, uh, of this thing that is the throne, moving throne of God that he describes a little bit earlier, and he says within this, comes the likeness of four living creatures. Now, he calls them living creatures here now. He doesn't identify them as cherubim, but he does, when you get to Ezekiel 10, he references back to these living creatures and identifies them as cherubs. So you have these four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Okay, each one had four faces. Think about this. Four faces, and each one had four wings. Now, we're going to look at seraphs, seraphim, in a minute. They have six wings. These have four fa- four wings and four faces. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. You know what a calf's hoof looks like. That's what their legs look like. That's what their feet look like. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. Just think of... Something almost gold colored, just bronze, just brilliant and flashing, incredible light surrounding the throne of God. The hands of man of a man were under their wings on their four sides. Four sides. We can't comprehend a four-sided creature like this. And if we can't comprehend, this is a finite creature which we ought to be able to comprehend in some way. If we can't comprehend a four-sided creature, how do you think we can really comprehend God? We see the magnificence of God in his creatures like this that, that tells us something about how, how incredible he is in the way he can create. And just look at creation sometime. That's one thing I do like about watching a lot of p- video pictures that National Geographic does is it just acquaints us with so many, you know, just the, the, uh, just the complexity of God's creation. Their legs were straight, the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet, sparkle like color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of their four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. So this, and it says, as for the likeness of their faces, each one had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. They're covering themselves because they're in the presence of God. And we see the same thing with the seraphim. That's the next class. Seraphim had six wings. You should be in Isaiah 6 by now. If not, we'll, we'll turn there. 
And this is the thrust of our passage tonight, thinking about what happens as Isaiah, that God, as, as God reveals himself to Isaiah and the response that it engenders. He sees these seraphim, they have six wings. Then there's another group that's described in Revelation 4, and we'll get there later, that also have six wings, but they're not quite like the seraphim. So are these all one or, you know, variations within one order of angels? Are they three distinct orders of angels, which is what I think? Three distinct orders of angels, each with similar roles and responsibilities. Okay. We're in Isaiah chapter 6. As we talked about worship in the past, I revised the definition of worship that we had the last couple of weeks, basing it on the definition that Dr. Ross put forth. I modified it little bit. True worship is the celebration of being in eternal fellowship with the sovereign and holy triune God. Now, we think of celebration as having a party, but the idea of celebration is the idea of honoring somebody. It can be very sober. It can be very serious. It is not necessarily going out and just having like a New Year's Eve party and just having a wild time. It is where you are honoring somebody and showing your respect and reverence for somebody. That is the meaning of the term celebration. We celebrate being in in eternal fellowship with the sovereign and holy triune God. We are in fellowship with God. We talk about this a lot. We talk about being in fellowship as if it's just sort of a status, and in some sense it is, but it is more than that. The word for fellowship in, in the Greek koinonia has the idea of a, of a partnership in some cases. It involves an intimacy and an interconnectedness that we can't quite grasp as we think about how we are related to this eternal, incomprehensible, glorious God. So the next part of the definition focuses on who he is. He is sovereign. He rules over everything. He is the sovereign Lord. When we see on... In Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that's a good translation. Now, there are some translations who translate this and will add the phrase, the sovereign Lord. That captures the significance of what is being said here. We read Lord, we use it a lot in everyday language and everyday worship talk and talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But when it is used in this context, it is emphasizing his elevated, uh, distinct status as the ruler of the universe and the creator of the universe. He is the sovereign God for worship to be worship. We have to understand that the one to whom we worship is the sovereign Lord, and he is the triune God. 
We'll talk a little bit more about this uh, as we go through through it, but this is the triune God on the throne, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one God. Remember, God is one. He exists in three persons, but he is one God in an indivisible unity. So when he when Isaiah is looking here, he is focusing on the triune God. That is the focus of our worship. Now, how do we do this? How do we celebrate? That's the next question. That's the mechanics, the means. How do we do this? There's three elements here that are important. There is a reverent adoration. There's a also a reverential fear. And I've been going through passages dealing with the fear of the Lord that this there is a tension that occurs in these episodes. We're going to go through several of them as we go through the study. As people come face to face with God, it is a terrifying experience. Now, I've been in various films and movies that are scary movies, and I don't like scary movies. I don't never, never have. I've seen one or two of them. But they're designed to just terrorize people, just to create fear and anxiety, and some people just love that. I don't particularly love that. But this terror that people realize when they see the presence of God doesn't end there. Because when they see the terror of God, they have this fear that overwhelms them because they see God and they understand exactly who they are. And they, 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 they want to shrink from God because they know they're unworthy. That's what we see with Isaiah. But what happens at the same time is that God reaches out to them and draws them in in his love and compassion. So there's, on the one hand, this desire to shrink back from this holy, righteous, just God, but on the other hand, he draws us in. That is, um, that is sort of the, the, the contradiction that we see in this term, the fear of the Lord, and why it's difficult for us to really get our arms around that. In one sense, it is a sense of terror, and in the other, it is a sense of awe and attraction. So we have this reverent adoration, and that can result in just a spontaneous praise of God's character and his works. And as I read this, we have to express this in these words, it it almost seems too weak in the expression of it. We're not just praising his character, but we're praising God for all that he is. That's his character. But we have to understand that, and probing that with our finite minds is, is the challenge. And understanding his works, all that he has done, this is why teaching creation, I think some of the work that that the creation scientists have done in exploring science from a from a vantage point where they're exploring what God has done, how He has created these incredible creatures. Some of some of you may not be aware of these um, videos, but there's a set of videos. I think they're called "Those Incredible Creatures" by Dr. Job Martin, and that's spelled J-O-B-E. And you can order them online, and they're just incredible. I've known Job for about. 30 years now, and he is a trained scientist. He became a dentist, and he he wasn't a believer. In fact, he was LBJ's dentist uh, when LBJ was president. And it was after that that he was teaching in the Baylor uh, School of Dentistry in Dallas, and one of his students was a, 
a devout, focused believer who was a creationist and challenged him in terms of his teaching, how can you look at the design of, 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 a, of a mouth and the teeth and all that goes into the makeup of, of, of man's uh, oral cavity and think that this just happened by chance? And the more he challenged Job, the more Job began to question his evolutionary presuppositions, and this eventually led him to trust in the Lord. And then when he was in his 40s, he left the, the profession of dentistry, and he uh, went to Dallas Seminary as a student. That was back back in the 80s, and that's when I met Joe. But those are just, just, he goes through and he has filmed these incredible videos about different creatures and how God's uh, intricate design of those creatures just defies the whole logic of, of just uh, accidental by chance evolution. So we understand God's character, we must understand his works, and that should be sort of a reflexive action just as, as, as Isaiah does in this, in this episode, just fall down on our face to worship him. Maybe not physically, but mentally. Second, the way in which we do this is through the express commitment of trust and obedience to biblically revealed responsibilities. We are to respond by trusting God. That's what what happens with Isaiah. When he recognizes who he is, there's a recognition of his sinfulness, his unworthiness. There is the cleansing of sin. And after this, then... God asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In other words, who will serve me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. That is the response of the uh, worshipful mind, is to respond in that way. What, how shall I serve you? My life is to be in service to you. And the third means is through the remembrance of God's gracious work of salvation and spiritual growth through divinely prescribed ordinances. This is what we do with the Lord's table, with baptism, is that we are remembering what God has done for us. And all of this is focused on the future. There is this focus on hope, this confident expectation of what God will do when he fulfills his promises in glory. So this passage begins, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now here we see a picture of the majesty of God. And when we look at the structure of these verses, as we look at the down through verse 8, which is our focus of our study, what we see, first of all, is that God is revealed or reveals himself to Isaiah in verses 1 through 4. Then we see Isaiah's response in verses 5 through 7. And then we see the challenge of God in verse 8 and the response in verse 9 of uh, of God in commissioning Isaiah. So he begins in a very significant passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. 
So, as God reveals himself in a direct way here to Isaiah, we must recognize that this is rare in Scripture. There are very few people who have had a vision of God that is this direct and this personal. We read about it in Job, in the in Job 38 and following, God is revealing himself to Job, asking him this series of questions. And in Job 40 and in Job 44, 44 uh, Job just re- recoils. He, he, he can't say anything before God. We see it in Jake, with Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28, 16 to 17. We'll study each of these instances for what we learn about worship. We'll see it with the Israelites when they're at Mount Sinai in Exodus 33.10, Exodus 34.9-11. And we see it with the leaders that Moses takes with him to, up to the presence of God in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1 and verses 9-11. through 11. We see it in the New Testament when Peter, James, and John go up on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17.1-8. But then when... Peter, remember, with the big mouth, says, well, let's build uh, three little booths to worship uh, uh, Elijah and Moses and, and Jesus. And then God says, listen to my beloved son. And what happens to Peter and James and John? They fall on their face in fear. They're terrorized. And then Jesus reaches out and pulls them in. That's the paradigm that we see in all of these instances. And then we'll see it in the heavenly scene in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. What we must understand as we look at Isaiah 6 is that the more that we value the majesty and the wonder, the glory, the love, and the grace of God whom we worship, the more focused and genuine will be our reverence, our gratitude, our adoration, and service to God. When we really focus on who God is in terms of his majesty, his incomprehensibility, and his glory, and his love, and his grace, it elevates us above the mundane. It doesn't bring God down to the mundane. That is the distinction in these words that we'll, we'll study with holiness means that which is set apart and distinct and unique. And the opposite of that word is that which is profane, that which is common. We think of profane in terms of profanity. That's not its ultimate meaning in in the Bible. It just that it's the common everyday use of something, and that that there must be this distinction. And I don't think that we see that in the way churches worship. And there's corporate worship. There there's a, must be this recognition of this distinction uh, at, this, at that time. So let's work our way through Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah was also called Azariah. He died around 740 B.C. Dates vary depending. I, I skimmed about eight commentaries, had about eight different dates. There's an uncertainty here because at the end of his reign, he's been disobedient to God. He gets leprosy, and he's no longer qualified to be king, so there's a co-regency. So it's, it's difficult to see what those dates are, and there's a lot of complexity there. So just roughly we'll say somewhere around 740 B.C., 
This was after Isaiah had already begun his ministry, but this vision could have been um, uh, could have been a restatement of his commissioning. We're not exactly sure on that, and I haven't had the time to work through all of the details related to that. That goes beyond our our focus on worship. Uzziah reigned for about fifty-two years. It was a time before the northern kingdom was taken out. So all of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, much of Judah is consumed with idolatry and rebellion against God. But Uzziah, Azariah, loved the Lord. And we're told in 2 Kings 15.3 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. But he succumbs to arrogance he enters into the temple to function as a priest, according to Second Chronicles 26.16, and this arrogance leads to his destruction, and God disciplined him by giving him leprosy. So he's no longer qualified to be king or to come into the temple to worship. He is now excluded, and he is ritually un- un- unclean. But during his time as king, there has been a measure of stability. He's been a good king. And now that he dies, the future is uncertain. And in this context, Isaiah's vision of God is going to bring reality into perspective. God, he recognizes and realizes in this vision is the ultimate sovereign. He's the ruler of the heavens and the earth. The king has died, but the real king, the ultimate king, is still on his throne high and lifted up in the heavens, and he is the one who is still in control. And so whatever the temporal problems are for Israel and Judah, and they are powerful problems, they're serious problems, whatever those problems may be, they are brought into perspective as Isaiah focuses on God and responds in worship. It is that focusing on understanding who God is that leads to his worship. Now, here's a point of application. In a broad sense, our times today are not much different than they were then. Isaiah lived when there's a great rising threat in the east to the existence of Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom. It's the rise in the power of Assyria, which had its base in what would today be Iraq. Later on, the threat will come from Persia, which is Iran, and that is a problem today. We have a great threat to Israel and to the to the west with the ambitions, the nuclear ambitions of Iran today very wisely our president withdrew us from what is called the JCPOA, the Joint Committee um, uh, Plan of Action. That's what that stands for. And that was what we, the Congress voted to approve under President Obama, which was one of the most foolish things and self-destructive things the West ever did, because as it turns out, and as many of us suspected, that the Iranians were lying to us. You couldn't trust him. And, and this, tr- this trove of documents that the Mossad was able to bring out of Iran, it's just a remarkable intelligence achievement and really embarrassed the Iranians. That's another reason they want to strike back at Israel right now is because Israel just gave them a bloody nose 
by this intelligence coup. They went into Tehran. They found that they had learned that all of these documents related to uh, the Iranian nuclear program, documents that showed all of their plans, their intents, their purposes. See, they had convinced the West that they really just wanted um, nuclear capability for power and for energy. What these documents proved was that was never their intent. Their intent was nuclear weapons. Their intent was to be able to use these against the West, and that never changed. And so these documents prove that. And, in fact, everything that led up to the uh, JCPOA and the uh, uh, treaty with, with Iran to partially shut down and restrain their nuclear ambitions was based on about a 1,000 pages of documents. But what the Mossad brought out was a 1,000 pounds of documents. There's a lot of difference between a 1,000 pages and a 1,000 pounds, and uh, they were able to go in, and they, uh, and they also brought out about 180-something uh, disks with over 55,000 documents, plans, visuals, charts, diagrams, everything were all brought out of, um, of the heart of Tehran. They went in in just some nondescript, I've seen pictures of it, nondescript storage area, storage facility area. They went in and just, just like going down here to one of these public storage places in one of those garages, they had stored all of this material showing that as soon as the sunset provisions went into effect and the agreement was no longer in effect, they were going to pull all this stuff out and ramp up their program as fast as they could. They were still developing missiles. They were still doing everything they could that wasn't prevented by the JCPOA so that they could, could they played the long game. They didn't care if this was going to last 10, 10 years. As soon as that was up, they were going to go back to nuclear weapons. They're probably still doing a secret program, which is indicated in these documents. So that's the threat that's going on today. And Iran is the real uh, power behind Hezbollah, they're heavily involved in Syria and in Lebanon, and most of southern Lebanon is controlled by Hezbollah. They had elections in Lebanon yesterday, and even though Hezbollah didn't gain more seats in the parliament, that some of the other parties that are sympathetic to Hezbollah increase their power base, so they have more power in Lebanon. And the Russians are bad actors and allied with Iran in Syria as well. So Israel is definitely threatened by what's going on today. But God has a plan. You know, there are always people that have plans to do away with God's people. Hitler had those plans. They didn't work. That's because God is still in control. And our problems may not be that bad, but the solution is the same. Whatever you're facing, if it's a financial problem, if it's a relationship problem, if it's a health problem, whatever job problem, whatever it may be, the focal point in our lives is who God is, and not just a superficial side, but, but just really focusing on who God is. And the more we realize the greatness, the grandeur, the power of God, the more our individual problems just diminish by comparison. We realize God really is in control. So the situation at this time wasn't a, a lot different then today, world politics always make things look unstable. Uh, we have problems in the U.S. with our politics, makes the future seem somewhat unstable and uncertain, but it's always been that way 
the reality is that God makes things certain. Even think about what's going on in 740 B.C. It's 18 years, roughly, before Assyria is going to come in and destroy this northern kingdom and deport most of the population and resettle them all over the Assyrian Empire. And yet, what we know is that God is still in control. So even if the worst happens in our lives, God's still in control. And our response to that is, well, this is what God allowed to happen, so I have to serve God in the midst of that. And that's what Isaiah is realizing here is that once he realizes who God is, he realizes that no matter how bad things may be on the temporal level, that his role is to serve God in the midst of that chaos and in the midst of that crisis. And that's where we are. And that is living our life of worship. And so we are to focus on this holy, majestic, incomparable God who transforms Isaiah and the rest of his life and who can transform us and the rest of our life. And that is what is at the core of biblical worship. And so Isaiah describes what he sees, that this is the eternal God who is the true ruler over Israel, that temporal rulers come and go, temporal presidents come and go, parties shift power, but it is God on his throne who rules and reigns over the affairs of of mankind. And so he describes what he sees. It is Yahweh sitting on his throne. He's high and lifted up. This emphasizes his majesty. He is above everything else. He's above all of these creatures that are close to him and worshiping him. And the train of his robe, his glory, as we'll see it described, fills the temple. Now, there's debate over what temple this is, whether this is the heavenly temple or whether this is the earthly temple. And it's very likely that as Isaiah goes in to worship in the temple, that it is in the earthly temple that he sees passed and through the earthly temple on Mount Moriah directly into the throne of God. God opens that gateway, and he can see the heavenly God. Remember... God is enthroned in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. That's the throne of God. That's what we've been studying. And what led to this study is the movement of the Ark uh, to, to Jerusalem and to Mount Moriah. And that God, David recognizes God is the true king of Israel, and he's moving him there so that the throne of God will be in the capital city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, is going to be recognized more fully by this time next week as the U.S. Embassy will open there. Now, as I close, I want to remind you of a couple of things to pray and watch out for this next week. The first thing was the deadline for what President Trump did today was Saturday. So he's made that decision today. He's announced that today that he's pulling us out of the Iran uh, agreement of the JCPOA. And therefore, the full force of the harshest sanctions are to go into immediate effect. Now, that has some ramifications because that means that all these businesses and all these businessmen and all these businesses in Europe, 
that have continued to do business with Iran have to pull out within a certain amount of time, a certain transition period, or they will be sanctioned as well, and the countries that they're based in will be sanctioned. So this has some tremendous consequences. That's already that's happened today. The deadline was going to be Saturday. Sunday is May 13th. May 13th is Jerusalem Day. It is the anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem after it was was uh, the the Arab armies were defeated in the 1967 war. This is not a day that the Arabs enjoy. So May 13th is Jerusalem Day followed on May 14th by um, by the 70th anniversary of Israel's victory over the Arab armies in their war for independence. This is not a day that they love. It is a day that the U.S. Embassy is going to open in Jerusalem, which is what's caused all this activity down on the, on the um, Gaza border by Hamas. So you've got Sunday's Jerusalem Day, Monday is the anniversary of Israel's uh, independence, and then Tuesday is called Nakba Day. Nakba is an Arabic word meaning catastrophe because Israel had gained their independence. That is a catastrophe in the Arab world. So you have three major days that... I believe we're going to see some significant hostilities. There's going to, they're going to start throwing spitwads at each other again. And this is going to happen for maybe three or four days, but I don't think it's going to last for long. But they're going to get all upset. Nobody's ready for a big war. So there may be some things that, that pop there, but pray for that. Be, be aware of that. But God is still in control, and he's working things towards his, his end result. So we'll come back next time. And we'll continue into this next critical section in Isaiah 6, 2 through 4, talking about what it means that God is holy. When the angels sing again and again, this goes on and on throughout eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does holy mean? What does glory mean? That will be our focus next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your greatness, be reminded that you are in control of history. You sit on your throne high and lifted up, and you rule over the affairs of men. And as we see the wars, the rumors of wars, the chaos, all of the things that go on in the world today, the economic ups and downs, We too often get consumed by the details, fearful of the details, but we need to focus upon you, your character, the fact that you rule over things and that we are protected. But above all, as we come to focus on you, we we should realize, as Isaiah did, that we are to then serve you in this fallen, corrupt world. Father, we pray you would help us to understand what this means for our personal and corporate worship as well. In Christ's name, amen.